Welcome to the Faith and Investing Podcast, brought to you by the Eventide Center for Faith and Investing. We are an educational initiative of Eventide Asset Management, where our aim is to inspire an authentically Christian practice of modern investing. This podcast features conversations with thought leaders in the space of faith and investing, and also functions as an audio digest of the articles we feature in our online journal at faithandinvesting.com. Welcome back to the Faith and Investing Podcast. I'm Matt Gallion with the Eventide Center for Faith and Investing. Should Christians invest in companies that profit off the production or distribution of alcohol? Many would tie their answer to one's personal scriptural conviction on alcohol. If one believes the Bible prohibits the consumption of alcohol, one should follow that conviction with their investing decisions. If one thinks Scripture affirms the goodness of alcohol for their enjoyment, they're free to invest accordingly. But how does this answer reconcile receiving the potential investment returns of companies that profit off of those with addictions? Today, we're featuring the story of someone on that side of the investing equation. Anne-Marie Keltner has experienced the pain and devastation of alcohol addiction in her own life. Emory also has years of experience in the finance industry. Both her personal and industry experience have allowed her to gain a deeper perspective on the alcohol industry. It also serves as an example of how we might more carefully think about the people connected to all of our investing choices. Today's article is written and read by Anne-Marie Keltner. Anne-Marie is the office administrator at Eventide Asset Management. She previously worked in financial operations at a boutique asset management firm and as a derivatives trading assistant at Bank of America. She holds a bachelor's degree from Villanova University and a master's in education from the University of Pennsylvania. Without further delay, here's Anne-Marie reading her article, The Personal Impact of Our Investing Decisions. I woke up and looked around. I seemed to be in some sort of medical facility. It was cold, industrial, with metallic beds. I couldn't make sense of it. I tried to think back to piece together what had happened. Nothing. I knew it was Thanksgiving morning, but I had no idea where I was or how I'd gotten there. An attendant walked in, and I asked, What's going on? Where am I? How did I get here? She told me that I had checked myself into the inpatient clinic at Bay Ridge Lynn Hospital. I had evidently driven there during a blackout, unconscious, but still sort of functioning. As the fog in my brain began to lift, I realized that I could easily have been killed. My once promising life would have ended suddenly at age 39. Worse, I might have killed someone else, even multiple people. I was appalled. As I lay in that hospital bed, I felt sick to my stomach. I couldn't believe what I had done, nor how badly it might have turned out. Sadly, but not surprisingly, no one came to the hospital to check in on me. My husband and children didn't come. My parents didn't come. Nor did any friends, though I'm not sure I still had any left. I was at the very lowest point in my life, and I was alone. Why? Because I was addicted to alcohol. Though it was killing me, I simply couldn't stop drinking. My name is Anne-Marie Keltner, one of Eventide's most recent hires. 
I want you to know why I joined Eventide and why I chose to share this especially painful part of my story. Some faith-oriented mutual funds, including Eventide, choose not to invest in alcohol-related businesses. That strikes many Christian investors as legalistic or puritanical. They quickly counter that the Bible does not prohibit drinking alcohol. Jesus drank wine. He even made wine for a marriage feast about to run dry. We agree. Scripture offers no blanket command to avoid alcohol. Still, that's not necessarily the most appropriate consideration when it comes to investing. In fact, evaluating whether to invest in alcohol companies provides a very useful case study for how we might think about all of our investing choices. Take a look at the chart below from the Washington Post about U.S. drinking patterns. As you can see, approximately one-third of Americans don't drink at all. For another third, it's one drink or less per week. But for the top 10%, the picture is entirely different. They average 74 drinks per week. That's more than four and a half 750 milliliter bottles of Jack Daniels, 18 bottles of wine, or three 24 can cases of beer. As the Post's article notes, at this level of consumption, you almost certainly have a drinking problem. This has important implications for the alcohol industry. The top 10% of drinkers account for well over half of the alcohol consumed in any given year. In fact, a full 90% of alcohol comes from just the top 20% of buyers. According to Philip J. Cook, author of Paying the Tab, one consequence is that the heaviest drinkers are of greatly disproportionate importance to the sales and profitability of the alcoholic beverage industry. He adds, if the top decile somehow could be induced to curb their consumption levels to that of the next lower group, the ninth decile, then total ethanol sales would fall by 60%. Is drinking alcohol wrong? Is it prohibited by scripture? No and no. But are the vast majority of the alcohol industry's revenues and profits earned from people like me? Absolutely. Which means the industry is directly contributing to the addiction, misery, and premature deaths of a great many people. The National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism says that in the U.S., approximately 100,000 people die from alcohol-related causes annually, making alcohol the third leading preventable cause of death. The first is tobacco. Globally, 3 million deaths in 2016 were attributable to alcohol consumption. In fact, alcohol misuse is the very first leading risk factor for premature death and disability among people ages 15 to 49. And 14% of total deaths among people ages 20 to 39 are alcohol attributable. Furthermore, underage drinking provides a non-trivial portion of industry profits and death and destruction in the lives of young people. The NIAAA reports that alcohol is a factor in the deaths of thousands of people younger than age 21 in the U.S. each year. It also notes that one in five college women experience sexual assault during their time in college, most of which is related to alcohol consumption. All of which means that the alcohol industry does not earn most of its revenues and profits from people like most of you i.e. people who enjoy an occasional glass of wine. Rather, the large majority of its profits, and those of its investors, 
are earned from the dysfunction, devastation, and death it brings to far too many lives. Lives like mine. So let me tell you more about the devastation drinking unleashed in my own life. I grew up in a warm, loving, upper-middle-class Catholic family. No one in my family drank. But in America, it's almost considered a rite of passage to drink heavily when you're young. Alcohol is readily available, and popular culture portrays drinking as cool, mature, and a never-ending party. I absorbed these messages and started drinking with my friends when I was in high school. I loved how alcohol made me feel. Partying quickly became my number one priority. Eventually, I graduated from high school, from college, and then earned a master's degree at an Ivy League university. I also became a very high-functioning alcoholic, though I was still far from acknowledging that. Sort of by accident, I found myself working in Manhattan on the equity derivatives trading floor of an international bank. I passed my Series 7, 63, and 24, and embraced the work-hard, play-hard Wall Street lifestyle. By now, I was drinking every day, starting at around 4.30 in the afternoon. I had that fabulous life I wanted, and I was rapidly becoming more and more miserable. Really, I hated myself. I couldn't look in the mirror. My friends and family didn't know what was wrong with me. I didn't know what was wrong with me either, so I drank more. This led to a further cascade of alcoholic destruction. My life now only had room for two things, work and drink. I lost any ability to relate to others or even do basics like clean my apartment. It was disgusting, so much so that on September 11th, 2001, when two of my New Jersey colleagues were trapped in Manhattan, I couldn't even offer them a place to stay. I simply couldn't face having anyone see the squalor in which I was living. Of course, that added another layer to my self-loathing. I decided to leave New York, thinking that a relocation would solve my problems. This turned out to be the first in a string of failed hopes that people and places would fix me. I built a house and met my husband, a wonderful, loyal man who doesn't drink. I thought marriage would save me. It didn't. I had two children. I thought being a mom would fix me. It didn't. When all of these failed, and I love my husband and children as much as anyone, I fell further. After my second child, I had a miscarriage. For the pain, my doctor gave me oxycodone and for my anxiety, a benzodiazepine. I quickly became addicted to both. I wanted to stop, but I couldn't. I went through two different rehabs. I was such a mess that my husband filed for divorce and would have gained full custody of our young children. Family and friends had all learned to stay away. Somehow, by the hand of God, I went to one last place called the Plymouth House. It was different in two fundamental ways. First, it's run by former alcoholics and addicts. And second, their program for recovery was based on the 12 steps. The underlying premise of the 12 step program is that any addict's recovery requires surrender to a higher power. 
At the time, I had long since stopped believing in Jesus as anything other than a historically well-respected teacher, and my concept of God was some kind of vague, pantheistic spirit. But the recovering alcoholics at Plymouth House believed in a God with whom you have a personal relationship, a God that you could give your life over in order to stay alive. My instinctive reaction was that this sounded superstitious and old-fashioned. I was too educated, too modern, too sophisticated. But then I looked at my ragged, broken self and my pitiful situation. And I looked at the people working at the Plymouth House. They were confident, competent, and authentic. Who was I to say that they were wrong and I was right? Look at where my sophisticated thinking had gotten me. Still, I couldn't imagine that anything would restore me to sanity. I had tried and failed so many times that I no longer believed I could be fixed. But my Plymouth House counselors said that only one thing would work, fully surrendering my life to God. I realized I was standing on a cliff. Behind me was only death and destruction, including a heartbroken husband and children. Before me, I had no idea. With my eyes closed, I took a step into the unknown and said the third step prayer of surrender. I've said it every morning since. I never had another drink. By God's extraordinary grace, I am now nearly 10 years sober. I can't explain what happened exactly. But after that prayer, I began to see the world differently and my place in the world differently. It wasn't all about me anymore. Still, there is much that's been hard. Healing from the brokenness in my life and the brokenness I caused in others' lives has been a long, slow process. Today, though, I am hugely blessed. My marriage and my family have been restored, and I find myself humble and content. I still have flaws and failings, but I know I am loved and I am pleased with who and how God made me. Recently, I joined Eventide. I was thrilled to find a place where my Wall Street experience could be harnessed to a higher purpose, to the kind of investing that makes the world rejoice. What Jesus did to me, he has been doing for 2,000 years. Shouldn't we make sure our investing doesn't come at the expense of the very lives he is trying to save? Thank you for listening to the Faith and Investing Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, share with a friend, or rate and review us on your podcast app of choice. Your rating and review allows more people to discover helpful resources on faithful investing. To find out more about the Eventide Center for Faith and Investing, visit us at faithandinvesting.com. Eventide Center for Faith and Investing is an educational initiative of Eventide Asset Management, LLC. Any reference to Eventide's Business 360 approach is provided for illustrative purposes only and indicates a general framework of guiding principles that inform Eventide's overall research process. Statements made by Eventide should not be interpreted as a recommendation or advice pertaining to any security. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.